Episode 6, Woody Takes on Washington, with some help from Pete Seeger. In a 1941 collection co-edited with his son, Alan, song collector John Lomax declared Woody Guthrie to be one of America's finest singers. A hallmark of the Dust Bowl ballad maker was his authenticity. In private, Lomax looked down his nose at someone so disrespectful of his elders and betters. The same was certainly not the case for Charles Seeger and his extended family. In the early 40s, they all shared Alan Lomax's readiness to tolerate his protégé's erratic behaviour. Each Seeger saw the need to promote a unique talent and a potent political force, none more so than the idealistic ingenue Lomax hired to help edit a library of Congress anthology of Guthrie songwriting. Time and again over the next 10 years, the Dust Bowl refugee tested Pete Seeger's patience, sometimes to breaking point. But in 1940, the younger man embarked on a lifelong mission to make all the world aware of Woodrow Wilson Guthrie and the songs he sang. The East Coast liberal intelligentsia was tolerant, even supportive, of Guthrie's homespun collectivism, fashioned by direct experience and a readiness to translate ideas into action. By the time Guthrie met Alan Lomax and Pete Seeger, he, and they, endorsed the Communist Party's hardening line towards the New Deal, Government intervention was nothing more than the convenient tool of a foredoomed capitalism. Thus, Roosevelt's ostensibly humane reforms were again seen by card-carrying members and a good many fellow travellers as serving solely to preserve a free market status quo. With the adoption of a popular front strategy in 1935, the party had revised its initial indictment of the National Recovery Administration as the pathetic face of social fascism, a dramatic improvement in workers' rights courtesy of union-friendly legislation, was scarcely compatible with an insistence on FDR as a capitalist wolf in sheep's clothing. The Communist Party chairman, Earl Browder, ran for president in 1936, but, unlike when he stood again in 1940, the campaign was low-key, with Roosevelt's victory seen as progressive forces across America uniting to defend democratic reformism in the face of incipient fascism. As the New Deal lost energy and momentum, recovery stalled in 1937-38 and defence expenditure rose, so the communist disdain for the administration deepened. Guthrie's early months in California, where he stayed for two years from 1937, had marked a blessed escape from the horrors of the Dust Bowl. However, his initial gratitude and goodwill towards all forms of federal relief ebbed away. Ironically, modest reward on the West Coast as a performer and newspaper columnist generated a growing disenchantment with the New Deal. Woody's intimacy with fellow travellers and Communist Party members fueled a firm belief that, for all the grand projects in the Tennessee Valley and elsewhere, FDR had failed to match the soaring ambitions of his first inaugural address. Guthrie had neither the intellect nor the inclination to immerse himself in Marxian dialectics, but he soaked up the Communist critique of global finance, not least Wall Street's capacity to thrive in the face of economic crisis through remorseless exploitation of ordinary working men and women. While in the late 1940s he claimed to have been a member, Guthrie's biographers have found no evidence to suggest that he ever joined the Communist Party. According to Will Gear, there was no way the CPUSA would recruit someone the executive saw as incorrigible, ill-disciplined and invariably indifferent to the prevailing party line. In practice, Guthrie was rarely at odds with whatever policy Moscow imposed on its Californian comrades. But he was open to a whole host of other ideas, many of which were deemed incompatible with communist orthodoxy. In the 1938 midterm elections, Guthrie had still sung his support for local democratic candidates. Looking for the New Deal, advised, 
the working folks to stick with Mr FDR and Mr Olson, your governor. Yet 12 months later, a hardened attitude towards Roosevelt and an unashamed affinity with the local Communist Party had cost him his show on the Los Angeles radio station KFVD. Gusby complimented his old time and original songs with a typically quirky, often charming, but always unsophisticated commentary on the state of the nation and the state of the world. This was a level of analysis long on polemic and short on nuance. Not surprisingly, KFVD's owner brusquely dismissed Guthrie's claims that the Soviet Union's non-aggression pact with Germany and its subsequent occupation of eastern Poland was crucial to the survival of the world's first socialist state. Such thinking was equally unwelcome when Guthrie and his family settled back in Oklahoma, prompting the restless and unrepentant militant's departure for a more congenial New York City. From February 1940, Guthrie was based on the eastern seaboard. Unlikely as it may seem, he became a New Yorker, and for a while his family came over from LA. While the journey north was decidedly uncomfortable, not least when hitchhiking out of Pittsburgh in the middle of a snowstorm, Guthrie found Will Gear's apartment a comfortable berth when he arrived in Manhattan. Woody's leisurely experience in his first lodging, days spent reading newspapers in New York Public Library, or fashioning an early version of This Land is Your Land in the Bowery Bar, constituted a leisurely, even stress-free experience, wholly at odds with that mythologised by Bob Dylan in 11 outline epitaphs, the liner notes to the times they are changing. Here we have a bleak if romanticised picture of gnawing hunger and ceaseless busking in subway cars, midtown bars and union halls, a mythical state of affairs which the writer wishes he had either replicated or ideally shared. Alan Lomax famously heard Woody Guthrie's New York debut at the Forest Theatre in February 1940. Will Gear was staging a Grapes of Wrath benefit for farm workers and the lowly build Guthrie caught Lomax's attention by playing up his oaky persona. He was quickly whisked off to Washington for a marathon studio session of songs and stories. Only in 1965 did the Library of Congress release a box set of these recordings. Lomax went on to secure Guthrie extensive radio exposure and a contract with Victor to record a package of records, thus bowl ballads. In effect, the younger Lomax launched his Discovery's East Coast career while receiving scant gratitude for all the time and effort taken to make Guthrie feel at home in an environment very different from his native Oklahoma or his adopted California. Guthrie collaborated with Lomax and Seeger on the unequivocally anti-capitalist and aptly titled compilation Hard-Hitting Songs for Hard-Hit People. Out of an astonishing 243 songs, 28 were self-penned. In addition, Guthrie drafted a highly personal introduction and an angry, uncompromising commentary. In a militant collection unpublished for over a quarter of a century, Lomax served as the anthologizer and Seeger acted as the arranger. Both men, in their different ways, hardened Guthrie's antipathy towards the Roosevelt administration as the White House responded to events in Europe with further increases in defence expenditure. Not that Guthrie, however disillusioned, ever wholly reneged on the New Deal. In the spring of 1941, he reasserted the state's potential for rescuing Roosevelt's forgotten man when recording his Columbia River songs commissioned by the Bonneville Power Administration in Oregon. He was employed for a month on the assumption that after four weeks the Department of the Interior would find out about his communist sympathies and sack him. In that short space of time, Guthrie wrote an astonishing 26 songs for the soundtrack of a feature film, which in its original form never saw the light of day. Seeger's favourite, which he sang at the 1970 concert, was the majestic and suitably panoramic Roll On Columbia. 
A more obvious choice for Dylan and the Crackers was Grand Coulee Dam, and with it an oblique reference to FDR. Uncle Sam took up the challenge in the year of 33 for the farmer and the factory and all of you and me. Guthrie later linked construction of the publicly funded dams to the war effort, but his involvement in the BPA project preceded Operation Barbarossa, let alone Pearl Harbour. Guthrie's 17-verse ballad, Tom Jode, written in the spring of 1940 for Dust Bowl Ballads and set to the tune of the Carter family's John Hardy, was wholly supportive of federal efforts to alleviate the horrendous conditions in which so many migrant families were forced to live. The song echoed its fictional protagonist's praise for the Farm Security Administration settlements set up in California as a secure and genuinely communitarian alternative to the jungle camps hastily erected by the orchard owners or their migrant workers. The FSA as a force for good is further highlighted by the contrast between the well-run weed patch camps in the Grapes of Wrath and the shockingly poor Hooversville Guthrie stumbles across in Bound for Glory. Weed Patch was based on the FSA's Arvin Sanitary Camp, run by Tom Collins. Steinbeck drew heavily on Collins' encyclopedic knowledge of Oakey songs and stories and dedicated his novel to Tom, who lived it. In 1942, Eleanor Roosevelt provided the text for This Is America, a morale-boosting album of photographs by the sociologist Francis Cook McGregor. The First Lady wrote approvingly of the 15 FSA camps, quoting two verses of Tom Jode and implicitly endorsing Woody Guthrie's radical sentiments. Will Gear always insisted that it was John Steinbeck's novel, not John Ford's film, which inspired the writing of Tom Jode. In Los Angeles in the spring of 1939, Gere orchestrated a meeting between Steinbeck and Woody Guthrie. Over the next few months, the actor and the singer performed together at benefits for the John Steinbeck Committee to Aid Farm Workers. In public, Steinbeck lauded Guthrie as someone who sings the song of a people, and I suspect that he is, in a way, that people. But in private, he refused to see Tom Jode as anything other than a straight steal from the Grapes of Wrath. By the time Mrs Roosevelt's This Is America was published, the nation was at war and Woody Guthrie was a member of the Almanac Singers, but very much the square peg in a round hole. The Almanac Singers can best be described as a folk group of middle-class, generally well-educated, serious-minded agit propagandists who enjoyed mixed fortunes before and after Pearl Harbour. The group's driving force was Pete Seeger, collaborator, travelling companion and faithful acolyte of Guthrie from the moment Alan Lomax brought the two men together in the spring of 1940. Guthrie's singing with the Almanac Singers gave them an empathy and authenticity they demonstrably lacked, so it's unsurprising that members shared Seeger's excitement when the man from Okemar started playing with them in the early summer of 1941. Over succeeding months, Seeger's principal partners, Lee Hayes and Millard Lampel, saw their tolerance of Guthrie's wayward lifestyle tested to the limit. Lampel had been writing freelance for The Nation when he struck up a friendship with Hayes, a southern poet and lyricist with a background in people's theatre. Both men found Woody unreliable, unpredictable and unruly, and yet at the same time they could see that here was a songwriter in full creative flow, with a stage presence they could never emulate. The reality is that while Guthrie's friendship with the saintly Seeger defied differences of class, age and education, there was little to connect him with Hayes, Millard and the other earnest young leftists who at various times made up the Almanac Singers. Unusually, these were musicians whose name was known in the White House, not least because their leader was a Seeger and their mentor a Lomax. 
If Eleanor Roosevelt's engagement with folk music ebbed and flowed across the course of the 1930s, the arrival of the Almanac singers had revived her interest. This was a group led by a young man who she greatly admired. On 19th of February 1941, in her syndicated daily column, she praised Alan Lomax for his energetic promotion of folk music, not least within the armed forces. Yet this was also a group which on record and in performance sang ceaselessly about her husband's supposed failings, not least his refusal to adopt a pacifist stance towards the war in Europe. Once the Soviet Union and the United States were at war, then old quarrels could be forgotten. But before June 1941, the situation was very different. With far left and far right forming an unholy alliance in advocating isolationism, both First Lady and President were outraged by the Almanac Singer's debut album. Songs for John Doe was recorded while Guthrie was back on the West Coast and yet to join the group full-time. Small and vulnerable, the Keynote Record Company released its package of six songs on Almanac, an anonymous label. Pete Seeger took the lead on five of the six songs. The traditional ballad Billy Boy had bluesman and occasional Almanac, Josh White, on guest vocals. Four numbers were self-penned, each of which was unflinchingly hostile towards Roosevelt, all but labelling him a warmonger. Seeger could sing songs, but he couldn't write them. His lyrics constituted little more than name-calling and sloganising. They contrasted sharply with those of the standout composition, Ballad of October 16th. On this song, Millard Lample, eager to replicate the trenchancy of Guthrie's Telling It Like It Is lyrics, excoriated FDR for forcing conscription through Congress. He said, I hate war and so does Eleanor, but we won't be safe till everybody's dead. On stage, this was the anthem which generated the biggest response from the Almanac's predominantly pacifist audiences. The Almanac singers and their incendiary album were in many respects the creation of Alan Lomax. It was Lomax who, on its release in May 1941, ensured songs for John Doe's unusually high profile, and it was Lomax who secured the album's speedy withdrawal once the Soviet Union found itself under attack. The launch of the German offensive on the 22nd of June 1941 saw the Communist Party quickly abandon its non-interventionist stance. How soon could the United States come to the aid of Stalin's Russia? Lomax duly convinced Eric Bernay, the owner of Keynote Records, to cease distribution of the politically embarrassing record and to destroy any remaining stock. Bernay happily acquiesced, but the Almanac singer's popularity saw him promptly release Talking Union, an uncontentious album of Labour songs. Lomax's influence on Woody Guthrie in 1940-41 was equally potent, not least in encouraging a succession of anti-war and or anti-capitalist songs that conveyed a real sense of anger. From August 1940, Guthrie featured prominently on Lomax's thrice-weekly radio programme for CBS, Back Where I Come From, his songs echoing the show's pacifist, socially conscious message. The authenticity of Guthrie, contrasting so sharply with the comfortable upbringing of Seeger and his fellow almanacs, manifested itself in a harsher tone of delivery, even when singing as part of the group. Yet Seeger himself urged Guthrie to play predominantly political songs when on stage. Trade unionists instinctively acknowledged Woody as genuine and as one of their own, whereas the Almanacs never wholly convinced the audiences of their adopted proletarian credentials. Why, smartly suited workers asked, did Sigurdal dress down when putting on a show and urge grown men and women to sing songs last heard in junior high? Union organised rallies and concerts, which featured the Almanac singers, were overwhelmingly white. It was the makeup of the audiences, William G. Roy points out in Reds, Whites and Blues, 
which explains why Lead Belly, Sonny Terry and Josh White rarely, if ever, played alongside Seager, Guthrie and the other comrades. Like Seager, Hayes and Lampel, and Alan Lomax, Guthrie had been insistent throughout 1940 and into the spring of 1941 that Stalin was right to denounce Europe's imperialist war and that Roosevelt should do the same. He believed the French and British governments had sought to avoid war by pointing Hitler eastwards, but had then paid the price of their folly. This conclusion was consistent with the view of many left-leaning intellectuals, some of whom displayed undisguised pleasure when witnessing Chamberlain's demise and Churchill's desperation. In his Woody Says columns for LA's People's World and later the Daily Worker, he defended the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. The Daily Worker's circulation had grown to around 30,000 in the late 1930s after it started to cover sports and the arts. Lively baseball reports and concert reviews were a welcome relief from the grim Stalinism of its editorial and news pages. A Woody Says commentary such as Adolf and Neverline, published in the Communist Party newspaper on the 12th of March 1941, exemplified Guthrie's readiness to reduce complex international affairs to a succession of homespun apicus articulated in a cheesy fake dialect, the charm and attraction of which soon faded. Guthrie's earliest performances in New York saw him convey an uncompromising anti-war stance of his well-honed everyman persona. If someone simple like me can see that war is a way for the rich and powerful to control and destroy the poor and powerless, then why can't you educate it, folks? Although as yet unknown, he was acclaimed at a benefit for Spanish Republican refugees on the 25th of February 1940 after singing Why Do You Stand There in the Rain? This was the caustic commentary upon FDR's fiercely anti-Soviet speech to the 6,000 delegates of the American Youth Congress gathered on the White House lawn a fortnight earlier. The drenched delegation had been invited at the behest of Eleanor Roosevelt, despite clear evidence that the previously broad-based coalition was now a front for the Young Communist League, among whose members was Pete Seeger. On stage at Manhattan's Mecca Temple was a singer named after the last president to lead the United States into war, criticising the current president for covertly seeking to do the same. Any support for the Allies was unacceptable. And the warlords play the same old game again. They butcher and they kill. Uncle Sam foots the bill. Immediately one thinks of Dylan, particularly with God on our side and Masters of War. But the brutal directness of the lyrics signal a less subtle polemicist, Phil Oakes. Guthrie was preaching to the converted, and overnight he became a hero of New York's progressive intelligentsia. What Alan Lomax saw from the wings of the Forest Theatre benefit was an authentic voice of the people, whose star was already in the ascendancy. From the spring of 1940, Guthrie made it acceptable for left-leaning musicians to berate the president. He complimented his on-stage attacks with a running commentary on FDR's alleged militarism in his Woody Says column. The only time Guthrie tempered his pro-Soviet, anti-intervention message was when he appeared on the radio, a handy income source, in the summer of 1940. The Almanac singers were similarly disrespectful, covering Why Do You Stand There in the Rain on stage and recording songs for John Doe. Where Guthrie led, Millard Lample followed. The sardonic, disrespectful sentiments of Ballad of October 16 set a new high, or a new low, in satirising the White House. Roosevelt supposedly dismissed these songs on the grounds that no one would ever hear them. 
Yet just occasionally they will be sung in front of a large audience, as in May 1941, when the Almanacs performed before thousands of striking transport workers at a rally in Madison Square Garden. It was the group's last performance of any significance before Hitler's invasion of the Soviet Union and Guthrie's arrival back in New York. <laughs> 